Okay, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 38. So Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we uh, look into your word, God, as we open up um, uh, this gospel um, and as we see what you have to show us and to teach us, uh, we pray that you would do that through the working of your spirit in our lives. Uh, we know that uh, on our own that we are incapable of understanding your word, um, that it is only through the working of the spirit that we can understand these things rightly. And God, maybe more importantly, that only through the spirit can these things be applied to our hearts, that we can live in light of them. Um, and that in everything we do, um, we would follow you. Um, God, we ask that the Spirit would move in a unique way, that it would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to this text so that we could receive it properly. We thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know, it is. <laughs> we usually pull the plug on it when we come back to the text. Yeah. Okay, um, so... Today, um, like we already said, is the first Sunday of Advent, and appropriately, right, our text sort of begins this Christmas narrative, right? Um, the story of the coming of, of Christ into the world um, that we find in, in the Gospel of Luke. And so this scene in Scripture has been given a special name. This, this section of Scripture is called the Annunciation, okay? And um, it, it begins a, a, a section of sections, a series of sections, that all kind of have special names, okay? And so the next thing we'll come to is the Magnificat, then the Benedictus, then the Canticle of Simeon. And so each one of these has, has sort of taken on its own unique focus, okay? And like we said last week, um, that is partially because uh, this whole first two chapters of Luke is sort of what we would call an overture, right? It is a, um, a, a sort of a preview almost of the themes that we are going to start seeing as we work through the Gospel of Luke. And so, again, this, this passage is called the Annunciation. You might have a heading in, in your Bibles that says that. It's called the Annunciation because this is the announcement, okay? This is the announcement of the incarnation of God 
in the person of a son by Gabriel to Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? So this is the first um, time that we sort of have this explicit thing told to us that, that, that the Messiah is going to come into the world. Um, and again, it, it takes on unique significance in, the, uh, significance in the scriptures. It certainly has taken on unique significance in the history of the church, especially during the medieval era. And that was probably because something that we probably were just going to touch on a little bit here and there as we talk is that, you know, this, the, in, within the Catholic um, world, this sort of cult of Mary um, kind of arose. And so since this is a story that sort of focuses on Mary in a lot of ways, this, this, this passage became a really big theme in, in medieval art, um, all the way up through the Renaissance and stuff. And so if you know, man, there's some beautiful stuff out there. Like if you're into art and art history and stuff like that, there's some beautiful pieces of art that are depictions of, of the, this theme of the Annunciation um, that are out there. Um, but anyway, as we said, it's a, lo- it's a larger thing. It's part of this overture, right? And so there's, there's, there, it's right that we should zoom in on it significantly and, and, and draw some things from it. And so let's kind of dig in and see what we can um, glean from it and what maybe um, God is pointing us to in some of these passages. Okay, so, so starting in verse 26, let's read that again. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Okay? And so here's the first place so far in the text of Luke that we have been introduced to these two pretty significant characters, the character of Mary and the character of Joseph. And so our attention is probably drawn to a couple of things about them that are, are sort of important, okay? And they're important because they point us to these two ideas of an unlikely place and an unlikely person, okay? So the first thing we notice is this. He says uh, that these people, Mary and Joseph, live in this town called Nazareth, all right? So the story shifts from the first thing we saw last week with the story of Zechariah of, of the center of Judaism, right? They were in Jerusalem. They were literally in the temple. They were literally in the holy place in the temple, okay? Um, and and the, it being sort of the center of the Jew uh, Jewish faith, okay? Now we are in this place called Nazareth. And Nazareth, if you don't know your, your geography, you probably got a map in the back of your Bible like a lot of people probably do, but if you don't know your sort of um, Israel geography, Jerusalem sits in the south, right? Uh, kind of close to the Dead Sea, relatively, or whatever. It represents sort of the center of the, the area that was called Judea, that was the kingdom of David. They were the people who remained faithful to David and, and the kingship of David and the lineage of David uh, before the kingdom split, okay? As you head north, you go through this area called Samaria, which we know from, like, the Good Samaritan story. That's where the, the Jews and the Samaritans don't like each other, right? That was where uh, the the Jewish people had intermarried and interbred with pagan um, people of that area, and so the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. And then when you get past Samaria, then there's another kind of pocket of Judaism here, all right? And it's up kind of in the middle of nowhere, near the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth is actually out in the country from the Sea of Galilee. Um, and it's, it's in the ancestral land. If you remember your 12 tribes of Israel from, from Sunday school and stuff, it's in roughly in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And probably all you need to know about how 
Nazareth was perceived in that time frame was a passage that we see in the Gospel of John. When Philip, the Apostle Philip, uh, has heard about the Lord and is recruiting other people to come to the Lord, he goes to Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, you should come hear this guy talk. He, we think he may be the Messiah. And, and Nathaniel's like, well, who is it? And he says, Jesus, who's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Right? That's, that's the attitude that people have towards Nazareth, right? It is a boondock, okay? It is a backwater, insignificant kind of town, functionally in the middle of nowhere. If there's a bright center to the Jewish world, Nazareth is the city that is targeted, okay? Uh, a place of no consequence, functionally. However, if you know your Old Testament and you know the words of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied this, in the former time that he has brought, God has brought, contempt on the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So that is the foretelling of the fact that the Messiah would come from that very land, Naphtali, Zebulun. In this case, we're zooming in and specifically learning that it is this town called Nazareth. And so it's an unlikely place for the Messiah to come from. You'd expect the Messiah to come from a place like Jerusalem, not from a place like Nazareth. And moreover, it's an unlikely person who the Messiah is going to come from. And so we, we, we are introduced to this character of Mary, and we learn a few things about Mary in this passage. A few words kind of stand out to us. Number one, we learn that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And so betrothal is kind of similar to our engagement, but it's distinct in a couple of different ways. Number one, Jewish betrothal carried more weight to it than our engagement did, does, okay? To get out of a betrothal, you had to go through a functionally a legal divorce, all right? Um, and you couldn't just back out for any reason. You couldn't just decide basically how we had with our engagement, eh, I decided I didn't really like the person, I don't want to be married to her anymore. You couldn't do that. Um, there was a contract signed, there was a bride price or a dowry exchange, and it was official, right? Um, oftentimes the, the daughter would continue to live with, in her father's house for a period of time, six months or a year, but eventually they would have the, marriage, the wedding ceremony. Um, but to get out of that engagement, to get out of that betrothal, you had to have some kind of significant ground. You had to have something like um, adultery or fornication of some kind, right? That they had, had to have been sexually unfaithful to you to get out of it, okay? And so we learn that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, but she is not yet actually married to him. We're also told three times in just this short amount of verses that Mary is a virgin. And so that word in, in the original language carries a little more significance than just our word does, although it's included in that. So certainly it means that she has never been intimate with a man. Um, but the word also carries a little more meaning. It carries the idea of the fact that she was of a marriageable age, okay? And now the thing that may kind of shock us a little bit as, as modern people, is that the marriageable age in that era was about 12 to 13 years old, all right? 
Um, and honestly, that was pretty standard for much of the world. The Roman Empire, in their legal code, said minimum age of marriage for a girl is 12, minimum age for a boy is 14, which makes sense because it takes boys just a little bit longer to mature, right? Um, and so that, that was a pretty standard kind of idea, and that has to do with all kinds of, of different factors. And so for one thing, I want to pause on that for just a second and briefly comment on it. Because I think Mary's age, the fact that she was probably no older than 14, maybe even as young as 12 or 13, it would have been completely common for a, a, a young woman to be married by the time she was 13, right, while she was still pregnant. And so I think that gives us pause. Maybe we think it's a little bizarre or off-putting or weird, but I want you to consider two things, okay? No, and and this, is, this is something that we notice in the Jewish culture. Number one is their concept of adulthood is very different from ours. So we're probably all familiar with the ideas of a bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah, right? These, these ceremonies where a Jewish um, child becomes a Jewish adult, and it happens at the age of 12 or 13. And at that point, according to Jewish society, you are a fully functional adult, right? You are a member of the covenant community. You have all the rights and responsibilities of being an adult in the covenant community, including marriage and the possibility of marriage, Okay. And so, um, for one, they have a different concept of adulthood, right? Like, we have created a culture where we press, push adulthood off, I don't know, mid-30s or something, right? Like, we have, like, you've got to have a house and, and you know, three degrees, I don't know, what you know, but we, like, push it way off. You continue to be able to act like a child and get away with it for a long time in that culture. You didn't do that in the Jewish culture, right? You hit 12. Obviously, there's a learning curve. They don't expect you to come out of the gate being like, you know, fully functional adult or whatever. But there's that, that at that point, you have crossed the line, okay? And there's a second thing that's super significant, too, and it's this. The Jewish faith held sexual morality at a very high standard, right? And you may have never made this connection or not, but the more a society cares about sexual morality, typically the lower the age of marriage and the less a society cares about sexual morality, the higher the marriage age, okay? And there is a, probably an obvious reason for that, okay? Because the longer you are not married, the odds of you being sexually active increase, okay? And so in cultures that say, no, man, this is super important, we want to stay super um, above the board on these issues, then marriage ages tend to go down. They get, they get skinnier rather than lower, okay? And as a culture says, no, we're cool. We expect people to do whatever they want to sexually. Um, then all of a sudden you go, well, we really don't need to get married until we're established all the way down these roads and, and different things, okay? And so notice something is that we might look at this and go, well, that's weird and bizarre and maybe even uh, gross or something like that. But the reality is this. It was a different culture, and in many ways, it was a culture that is more concerned with the things they should be concerned with than ours was, okay? Um, it was a different, a different kind of world. And so anyway, um, marriage was important in that culture. Morality um, was important in that culture. And more importantly, maybe, or at least equally importantly, lineage and paternity were important in that culture. That's part of the reason why sexual morality is such a big deal. In, in that culture, right? We're told in this very passage that Joseph is, is of what? He's of the house of David. Well, how do you know that? 
okay? The only way you can be sure of something like that is if you are relatively sure that people have been sexually faithful in, in their relationships, okay? That there are no children who have been born out of those lives. Now, again, you might look at those things and say, well, I think some of those things are too harsh and, and have different standards on those things. But understand that was the world that they were dealing with. They didn't have paternity tests, right? They couldn't go on Mari Povich and be like, are you really of the house of David? The answer was no. You know, like you couldn't do that back then. You had to hope and assume and have reasonable um, uh, reason to believe that your spouse had been faithful to you and had not um, uh, committed adultery or whatever, okay? And so anyway, we see this picture of these two people, right, this unlikely place in, in Nazareth, but we also see this unlikely person, right? Um, the very situation in which she finds herself, a betrothed um, young woman um, who is a virgin, the fact that she would have a child is, is, is very strange, right? Um, now, as these things start to, as, as we start to see the uniqueness of these things, um, we start noticing that the, the angel kind of starts comparing um, Jesus who is to come and John who is to come. Because we just read this whole passage about what John was going to look like, what he was going to be like. And if you notice, when you start reading this, the language is almost identical. In fact, there's like a dozen different little phrases that literally the phrases are the same. And so it says, Jesus will be like this, John will be like this. Jesus will be this kind of person, John will be this kind of person, right? And, and there's, a, there's an analogy there. But what we immediately notice is that Jesus is a different kind of person than John is, okay? And so there in that middle section, right, it says, um, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, verse 31, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay? And so we start to compare the two passages. John, it said John will be great before the Lord too. But Jesus is not only going to be great before the Lord, he is going to be called the Son of the Most High, right? Categorically different than John. John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. But Jesus is literally going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's a, almost a weird word that, that, that doesn't actually, it doesn't exactly fit or whatever, but that the, the Holy Spirit is going to cause Mary to become pregnant with Jesus. John is going to be a great prophet like Elijah, but Jesus is going to take up the throne of David, and not even like David and his descendants had that throne, but Jesus will be greater than his father David. Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Right? Jesus will. Not his line, not his descendants, but Jesus will reign over the house of, David, uh, of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so there's this deliberate contrast between these two characters. Why is that there? Okay, It's there to emphasize something, is that John is maybe different in degree. Okay, John is the most legit dude who's come along in a long time. Right? He is, a, he is a, an incredible prophet, maybe the, the epitome of a prophet of all time. But Jesus is not just another prophet. And he's not even just another king. He is something categorically different. He is different not just in degree. He is different in kind. And the thing that most accentuates that, the thing that most singles him out as unique among all these things is the virgin birth itself. Okay? And so the, let's talk about the virgin birth for just a second because obviously our attention is drawn to it in this passage. 
the doctrine of the virgin birth has got a little bit of like bad press, I think, over um, the last few years. Um, as, a, as a clarification real quick, when we talk about the, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth, we are not to confuse that with the doctrine of the immaculate conception. Sometimes you hear people use the phrase the immaculate conception, and they think it means the same thing as the virgin birth. It does not. The immaculate conception is the belief that Mary was also born supernaturally um, through a virgin conception. Okay? We do not believe that. All right? There is no evidence in Scripture to support that idea. And so sometimes they, I was even, we were in youth one time. It's, man, it's been, a, it's been years. Like I can, y'all were working with the youth or whatever. And there was a curriculum. And the guy in it was talking about the virgin birth, and he called it the Immaculate Conception. And I went, well, who better to explain, right? But he was, like, watching when they were making this curriculum or whatever. But it's not the same term. That's just kind of like a little side note. Um, you may go, man, I've never even heard that term. Like, what are you talking about? Why are you saying that? Um, the virgin birth, though, is significant. Um, but it's received a lot of flack, I think, over the last couple of years from both sort of more liberal circles and secular circles. Um, who maybe argue sometimes that it can't possibly be true, right? We are modern people who don't believe in silly things like virgin births. That is what primitive, unenlightened, first century kind of people, they believe stuff like that, right? But here's the thing. They didn't, okay? They didn't believe in virgin birth back then any more than we believe in virgin birth now. First century people knew where babies came from, okay? Everybody was on the same page with that stuff. We're sitting here talking about virginity. We're talking about lineage, right? They understand how these things work. When somebody got pregnant outside of marriage, they didn't just go around to their neighbors saying, oh, well, you know, it's just one of those virgin births, you know, it just happens like it, it, it does to people, right? That's not what would happen. People didn't believe it in that day any more than they would believe it in our day. Um, in fact, we see that in the scripture all over the place. The reality is, is that many people didn't believe now. And so there's this stigma that's hinted at throughout scripture that that they don't believe the story that, that, Ju, uh, that Mary conceived supernaturally, right? Um, Joseph didn't believe her either, right? And so if you think about it, the unprecedented nature of this event is demonstrated in, in the passage, right? So notice this, and, and it's, it's sort of a little nuance. When Zechariah is told that he will have a child, he questions that, right? He says, uh, how can this be? And then he's disciplined for it, right? Uh, he's made mute for the until John is born. Mary, however, is told, and she questions it too, almost in a similar way. How will this be since I am a virgin? But she is not disciplined. Why? So typically people will say something like, oh, well, she was doing it out of faith and he was doing it out of disbelief, and that may be the case, but I think there might be something more to it. The answer is this. Zachariah's miracle was precedented, Okay. When, when God said, hey, old man and old lady, you're going to have a kid, and Zachariah said, well, how can this be? The answer is because it's in the Bible like a dozen times, because the entire Jewish nation is based on it in the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? You know that this is the kind of thing God does. You're just not believing. But when Mary says, how is this to be? I'm a virgin. She's not disciplined for that. You want to know why? I think partially because it's unprecedented. It's expected that Mary would be like, this doesn't make any sense, because nothing like it had ever happened before. And so, um, again, we're not even talking about um, a, 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 a 
categories, right? We're not even saying, no, this is something similar to the way God has worked in the past. It's something completely new. And so both a, a liberal and secularist kind of um, question it in, in some of those ways. But all, honestly, evangelicals have done it too. The, and, and the importance of the doctrine has kind of fallen on hard times among certain um, groups of evangelicals. Some would even claim that it's a completely unnecessary doctrine, right? All it does is hinders people from coming to the faith. They, they have a hard time believing it. They get confused about it. And it's probably best that we just ditch it so that it is not something that interferes with people coming to Christ. They don't have to make that, that spiritual belief, intellectual jump to get to that point, okay? Um, but I think that's wrong. It is a necessary doctrine. Um, and that, that, that idea that it's unnecessary couldn't be farther from the truth. The virgin conception of Jesus is critical to the Christian faith. Um, and we see why even in Gabriel's answer. So look at verse 35. The angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Okay? So what is Gabriel showing us? He's showing us that the virgin conception of Jesus is a function of his holiness, of his sonship. Okay? If there is no virgin birth, if there is no virgin conception, then Jesus' holiness, his sonship, is now brought into question. All right? So it's not something that we can just get rid of because it is critically important that Jesus is holy, okay? that Jesus is completely set apart. All of mankind bears the guilt of, that he has inherited through the defilement of Adam. Right? That's the way we understand our sin nature to work. Um, we bear not only the guilt, but we are counted, uh, we are associated, you could say, with Adam's sin because he is our representative head, right? Adam sinned, and because he is our father, there is a way in which we are under his headship and we are associated with that sin. That happens on one level in the fact that um, we inherit the guilt of it in some ways, but we also inherit that sin nature. And that's what, what that means is that from the moment we are born, no, the moment we are conceived, we are tainted by sin. We are bent towards sin. Right? There's something in our hearts and in our lives that leans towards sin. It's like a congenital birth defect of our, of our spiritual na nature. It is like a baby being born addicted to drugs that they've never taken, but their family member, their parent, their mother has taken those, and therefore they're born already with this, this need, this desire um, for, for the drug, right? We are born in sin, but not Jesus. Jesus is not born in sin. Jesus is born holy because he takes after his father, not our father. He is God's son. We are Adam's children. And so um, you could argue, and somebody might say this, they'd say, well, why does he not inherit Eve's sin, right? Eve is his biological mother. How come he doesn't inherit sin, I mean, not Eve, I'm sorry, from Mary? But how come he doesn't inherit Mary's sin, Eve's sin through Mary or whatever? 
And, and that makes sense sort of in a logical way, but we're getting too nitpicky about it, right? Um, this isn't like a, a, a process of genes or heredity. It's not even really a process of legal process, right, of, of inheritance or, or something hereditary or birthright or something like that, right? We are talking about spiritual realities. And so we are connected to fallen Adam. Jesus is connected to holy God. And yet, at the same time, because of his, his, his human mother, he is truly human. He is fully human. He is not a demigod like we see in, in, in Roman or Greek mythology or something like that, right? Um, he is not demigod. He is God-man, right? He is the God-man, fully God, fully man, all at once. And because of that holiness, he can be the perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb that is required to atone for the sins of the world, right? So those are incredible things to say, unprecedented things to, to foretell about this, this person who is going to come into the world named Jesus. God is doing something new, and it is a lot to take in, right? It should be a lot to take in, which is what makes Mary's response all the more incredible. So verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. It is, it is something to dwell on the person of Mary. Right, to just dwell on her as a, as a, as a person, as a character in the scripture. Um, honestly, as a sister in Christ. Um, she must have been an incredible young woman. Because imagine, again, that, that, that kind of situation that she's been put into. A 12 or 13-year-old girl, right? Indian, right? Alien. Um, to experience all these things. To be visited by an angel like an actual angel who tells you that you're going to bear in your own body the Son of God. We have to wonder what her family was like. We don't learn about her much, but we have to wonder what her community would have thought. I can imagine that nobody believed her, right? Scripture is clear that Joseph, though a kind man, was not naive, and he didn't believe her. Um, and honestly, he shouldn't have, right? This story makes no sense um, outside of our normal categories um, or in our normal categories. And so he had justly, we learn, intended to break the betrothal. He didn't want her um, harmed or, or punished by the community, um, but, but he was like, it's obvious that you have been unfaithful because that's the only thing that could explain this. And so it necessitates an angelic visit on his part, right? And so an angel comes to him and says, no, don't break the betrothal because what she's saying is true and validates her story. And so yet, when confronted with all this, all this difficulty as this, as this, as this young woman, her response is complete submission, complete and utter trust in the goodness of and wisdom of God in all these things. And so she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so I think when you read that, does, it, does she not sound like all those Old Testament saints that we remember the story of Samson and Delilah? 
sons of faithfulness? Does she not want to sound like Isaiah when he says, here I am, send me? Does she not sound like Ruth when she says, wherever you go, I will go? Does she not sound like Eli when he says, it is the Lord's will, let him do what he thinks is best? Or even Job when he says, even if it kills me, I will still hope in God. And maybe most of all, it reminds us of Jesus, right? Not my will, but your will be done. That is the kind of faith that we see in this 12 or 13 year old girl. Is that true? Believing God is hard. Especially when we don't know what he's doing. Right? When we can't see the bigger purpose behind it. And I can only imagine that it's certainly in the short term that is the position that Mary was in. And yet, this middle age, I mean middle school age girl becomes the model of faith and submission for the whole world for all of eternity. So some people will t- turn to the Bible and they'll say, well, you know, the Bible, it's an anti-woman book. Right? It's a, it hates women. It's always making women into the bad guys, right? Delilah and, uh, and uh, Eve, you know, um, Jezebel. It's all these bad characters. They're always making women out to be bad characters, right? And yet, in the first half a chapter of the Gospel of Luke, We have seen a priest, a leader of Israel, a man who ought to know better, struggle in unbelief. And yet we have seen two women, Elizabeth and Mary, who faithfully honor God and believe him for his purposes. But their greatness, and notice this, is not in spite of their submission. It is because of their submission. Their greatness is found in their submission. An old woman who for all intents and purposes life has passed her by, and a teenage girl living in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Nobody would have expected these people to be used in the way that they were, but the kingdom of God is moving in this world. And it's going to arrive in ways and through people whom the world would not expect. And so one final thought kind of as we close, and and I I know I've kind of just kind of thrown a bunch of stuff out there at you, Um, but one final thought is this. These two women respond rightly, but I think it would be wrong to say that they are rewarded for their faith, right? That God's special use of them was somehow a reward for their faith. Because we notice this. Twice, Mary is called favored of the Lord. And she is called favored of the Lord before she does anything in terms of responding to him. And so I think this is at least what we can glean from that wording. When the angel shows up and the first thing he says is, blessed are you, you are favored uh, of God. Mary's not chosen because she is worthy of this stuff, right? She is chosen because of God's sovereign God has shown her particular blessing and kindness and honor, not because she deserved it somehow, but just because God is good and gracious and chooses to do that. And yet, she is faithful to that calling. She is faithful when God singles her out in this unique way. And so again, we're reminded um, that all of us, 
um, that we are all living as a function of God's grace, that we are, are chosen um, to be a part of his family as a function of his grace, that the holiness that we are be a, to be a part of through his purposes is a function of his grace, and probably most importantly, that the fact that he is sending a Savior into the world so that we could be free from our sins and have eternity in heaven with him. So as we go to a time of prayer um, tonight and as we close, um, I just want you to kind of dwell on some of these things. Um, I think that's sort of the theme of the Advent season in general. It is a contemplative time, right? I hope that you will, um, Christy and I are trying to do this in our, in our, in our family, in our home um, this year. We're trying to just mix things up, right? We're trying to back off from some of our normal routines and our normal things and try to live in a way that is a little more intentional, live in a way that is a little more focused on, on the things of God and less on the things of the world. And I hope that as we, as we look at these things, as we look at these themes of, of God using um, the unlikely, of God using ordinary people, of, of God working in gracious um, and, and crazy ways in the lives of people to, to meet them where they're at and move to the next. Um, I, I hope as we go through this season, you'll still dwell on those things, right? And that um, you will see that God intends to use you in many of the same ways that we find these people in Scripture that are using um, normal people in normal places doing and living in extraordinary ways in the face of God's grace. Um, so let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer, um, and then we'll have our, our worship leaders come back up and, and pray us. beautiful testimony of your goodness and grace that we can see through the people that you have provided for us in this season. God, we see exactly what we have already talked about several times, the idea that you are setting the stage, that you are um, introducing us to the theme uh, that we will develop all throughout uh, this gospel, and that we are seeing from the beginning that uh, you are no respecter of persons, uh, that you act in ways that are unexpected, that you choose people who the world um, would look uh, to the side of, that they would cast away, that they would ignore, that they would skip over. God, you are working to extend your grace to at least a few, working in the lives of, of unlikely people in unlikely places, and yet knowing the real presence of your spirit in some places, a spirit that is working in some spirit, that is changing lives, God, that is in this story um, bringing to life. God, we ask that we would have a, a sense of that and that we would have a, a measure of that spirit um, as we go through our lives, God, that we are recognizing that you are working in us, that you are working
Lord's Supper and we're worshiping Him as we are walking along the body and body of Jesus Christ. And all these things are not because we are special, not because we are unique and, and worthy of these things, but because you are good and you love to keep us in your word. And you love to um, work with ordinary people and do extraordinary things. And so, God, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we would trust, that we would believe for those things, that we would expect to see incredible things happen because of who you are and the ways you are at work. God, give us that kind of faith. Give us an Elizabeth kind of faith. Give us a Mary kind of faith. God, we thank you. We praise you. We bless these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.